back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingwayless podcast. Podcast where we do things awesomely. We're talking about chapter 48. Phil made a new friend, question mark. And oh, Miss Price, why'd you do that? What an ending. What a sad ending. I actually... I can't even remember <laughs> the rest of the chapter. The end of the chapter was so... Uh, shocking that I can't even remember the rest. Phil made a new friend. Who does, who was Phil's new friend? Was it? Oh, yeah, it was the model guy, the the life model, or whatever it is, the person who you paint. What are they called? Models? I suppose it's, that's what they're called. Lady Rostova said, I finally caught up, and what an ending. Hey, welcome to, uh, welcome to daily reading then, I guess. Um, I suppose you have to slow down now, one chapter per day, and, and try to stay in step with the rest of us. But I hope that you do, because um, it's very rewarding to go one chapter per day. It's going to feel slow for you for a day or two, or maybe a week, you know. It's going to feel very slow. Um, but I would urge you not to read ahead as much as, as much as you can avoid doing it, you know. I think <laughs> everyone here has read ahead at... at different points when we just can't help ourselves but to stay in line with everyone and we just discuss it one chapter at a time there's something about it when you have a full day to ponder and discuss each chapter before you get to move on you really get a lot out of it i think anyway uh it's nice to have you here lady rostova uh, i wanted to rant about how insufferable these people are and how they don't actually do anything making things and then destroying them either thinking they're not good enough or they're a genius this generation is never going to understand living life day to day without planning ahead but i guess depression comes with that way of life and hence suicide it was a very sad ending for the character and it hit me hard as i lost my cousin to suicide over two months ago using the same method also an artist damn oh that's that's really sad i'm sorry to hear that um Wow, isn't it so strange how how close to home some things hit? When I when I'm reading these books, I'm always kind of amazed at how relevant what I'm reading is to something that happened, like you know that day or that week or something I'm going through. So it's, it's always strange how relatable it is. And I mean, there's a there's an example of that, uh, a horrible example. Um, yeah. On another note, says Lady Rostova, I think Philip is gay for the Spanish guy. Yeah, I think you might be right there too. Uh, also, I wish I could live with two francs per week. I'm eager to see how this is going to affect Philip and maybe humble him a bit. I actually thought Emily, I forgot her last name, the old woman in the uncle's house, was the one who would kill herself over him. Oh, I didn't think anyone was going to kill themselves over Philip. Um, and I don't think Philip is gay. Right, I'm getting gay vibes, don't get me wrong. Uh, it's not the first time from Philip, but I don't think the character is gay. I think the author's gay, but I'm not sure if Philip is. Swim said the mama fish, says, my condolences for your cousin. I, too, thought the same thing about the Spaniard. The author tells us how repellent Philip found Miss Wilkinson, Emily, Miss Chalice, Fanny Price. They all are uh, repellent to Philip. Uh, but the Spaniard, the description of his physical beauty was amazing. Uh, according to TV tropes, it's because Fanny had a tragic dream. 
tragic dream. Fanny Price is absolutely determined to become a painter, but she has no talent whatsoever. She refuses to admit this and continues to study painting. It's something that is not just out of reach, but that she is fundamentally incapable of achieving or receiving and too damaged to realise this. I didn't provide the link, though, because of spoilers. Um, well, thanks. TV tropes. How good is TV tropes? I get lost in that rabbit hole every now and then. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's also good for coming up with ideas for stories. <laughs> Just all the tropes of stories. Um, and recognising them and going, oh, yeah, that is a cliche. That is a trope that I've seen a million times. Um, I'm Norwegian says, yikes, what an ending that chapter. All right, let's keep reading. It's going to move right along tonight because um, I'm actually pretty tired. I don't mind telling you. Uh, and uh, before we do that, here is uh, an advertisement for you. This podcast is brought to you by patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. That's what it's brought to you by. That's where you can go to support the, the podcast with small donations like $1 per month or something along those lines. Um, you don't get anything back for it, really. I think you get access to, like, um, posts that I put on there that are locked for subscribers only, but I don't really ever do that. So <laughs> you don't... It's just a way to support the podcast. It's not It's not one of those, you know, reward ones where you get perks back. Um, so, um, I don't know, if you're feeling generous, patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. All right, chapter XLIX, which means, of course, as we all know, 49 goes like this. The story which Philip made out in one way and another was terrible. One of the grievances of the women students was that Fanny Price would never share their gay meals in restaurants, and the reason was obvious. She had been oppressed by dire poverty. He remembered the luncheon they had eaten together when first he came to Paris and the ghoulish appetite which had disgusted him. He realised now that she ate in that manner because she was ravenous. The concierge told him what her food had consisted of. A bottle of milk was left for her every day and she brought it in her own in her own loaf of bread. She ate half the loaf and drank half the milk at midday when she came back from the school and consumed the rest in the evening. It was the same day after day. Philip thought with anguish of what she must have endured. She had never given anyone to understand that she was poorer than the rest, but it was clear that the, her money had been coming to an end, and at last she could not afford to come any more to the studio. The little room was almost bare of furniture, and there were no other clothes than the shabby brown dress she had always worn. Philip searched among her things for the address of some friend with whom he could communicate. He found a piece of paper on which his own name was written a score of times. It gave him a peculiar shock. He supposed it was true that she had loved him. He thought of the emaciated body in the brown dress hanging from the nail in the ceiling, and he shuddered. But if she had cared for him, why did she not let him help her? He would so gladly have done all he could. He felt remorseful because he had refused to see that she looked upon him with any particular feeling, and now these words in her letter were infinitely pathetic. I can't bear the thought that anyone else should touch me. She had died of starvation. <clears throat> Philip found at length a letter signed, Your loving brother, Albert. It was two or three weeks old, dated from the Sum Road in Surbiton, 
and refused a loan of five pounds. The writer had his wife and family to think of. He didn't feel justified in lending money, and his advice was that Fanny should come back to London and try to get a situation. Philip telegraphed to Albert Price, and in a little while he an answer came. Deeply distressed, very awkward to leave my business in presence. Is presence essential? Price. Philip wired a succinct affirmation, and next morning a stranger presented himself at the studio. My name's Price, he said when Philip opened the door. He was a commonish man in black with a band around his bowler hat. He had something of Fanny's clumsy look. He wore a stubbly moustache and had a cockney accent. Philip asked him to come inside. He cast sidelong glances around the studio while Philip gave him details of the accident and told him what he had done. I needn't see her, need I? asked Albert Price. My nerves aren't very strong and it takes very little to upset me. He began to talk freely. He was a rubber merchant, and he had a wife and three children. Fanny was a governess, and he couldn't make out why she hadn't stuck to that instead of coming to Paris. Me and Mrs. Price told her Paris was no place for a girl, and there's no money in art. Never has been. It was plain enough that he had not been on friendly terms with his sister, and he presented her suicide as a last injury that she had done to him. He did not like the idea that she had been forced to it by poverty, that seemed to reflect on the family. The idea struck him that possibly there was a more respectable reason for her act. I suppose she hadn't any trouble with a man, had she? You know what I mean, Paris and all that. She might have done it so as not to disgrace herself. Philip felt himself reddening and cursed his weakness. Price's keen little eyes seemed to suspect him of an intrigue. I believe your sister to have been perfectly virtuous, he answered acidly. She killed herself because she was starving. Well, it's very hard on her family, Mr. Carey. She only had to write me. I wouldn't have let my sister want. Philip had found the brother's address only by reading the letter in which he refused a loan, but he shrugged his shoulders. There was no use in recrimination. He hated the little man and wanted to have him done with him as soon as possible. Albert Price also wished to get through the necessary business quickly so that he could get back to London. They went to the tiny room in which poor Fanny had lived, Albert Price looked at the pictures and the furniture. I don't pretend to know much about art, he said. I suppose these pictures would fetch something, would they? Nothing, said Philip. The furniture's not worth ten shillings. Albert Price knew no French, and Philip had to do everything. It seemed that it was an interminable process to get the poor body safely hidden away underground. Papers had to be obtained in one place and signed in another. Officials had to be seen. For three days Philip was occupied from morning till night, at last, he and Albert Price followed the hearse to the cemetery at Montparnasse. I want to do the thing decent, said Albert Price, but there's no use wasting money. The short ceremony was infinitely dreadful in the cold grey morning. Half a dozen people who had worked with Fanny Price at the studio came to the funeral. Mrs. Otter because she was messery and thought it her duty. Ruth Chalice because she had a kind heart. Lawson, Clutton and Flanagan... They had all disliked her during her life. Philip looked across the cemetery crowded on all sides with monuments, some poor and simple, others vulgar, pretentious and ugly, shuddered. It was horribly sordid. When they came out, Albert Price asked Philip to lunch with him. Philip loathed him now, and he was tired. He had not been sleeping well, for he dreamed constantly of Fanny Price in the torn brown dress hanging from the nail in the ceiling, but he could not think of an excuse. You take me somewhere where we can get a regular slap-up lunch. All this is very worst thing for my nerves. Lavenue's is about the best place round here, answered Philip. 
Albert Price settled himself on a velvet seat with a sigh of relief. He ordered a substantial luncheon and a bottle of wine. Well, I'm glad that's over, he said. He threw out a few artful questions and Philip discovered that he was eager to hear about the painter's life in Paris. He represented it to himself as deplorable, but he was anxious for details of the orgies which his fancy suggested to him. With sly winks and discreet sniggering, he conveyed that he knew very well that there was a great deal more than Philip confessed. He was a man of the world and he knew a thing or two. He asked Philip whether he had ever been to any of those places in Montmartre which are celebrated from Temple Bar to Royal Exchange. He would like to say he had been to Moulin Rouge. The luncheon was very good and the wine excellent. Albert Price expanded as the process of digestion went satisfactorily forwards. Let's have a little brandy, he said, with the cof- when the coffee was brought, and blow the expense. He rubbed his hands. You know, I've got half a mind to stay overnight and go back tomorrow. What do you say to spending the evening together? If you mean you want me to take you round Montmartre tonight, I'll see you damned, said Philip. I suppose it wouldn't be quite the thing. The answer was made so seriously that Philip was tickled. Besides, it would be rotten for your nerves, he said gravely. Albert Price concluded that he had better go back to London by the four o'clock train, and presently he took leave of Philip. Well, goodbye, old man, he said. I'll tell you what, I'll try and come over to Paris again one of these days, and I'll look you up, and then you won't have to go. And then you won't... And then we and then we won't half go on the razzle. Philip was too restless to work that afternoon, so he jumped on a bus and crossed the river to see whether there were any pictures on the view at Durandarelles. After that, he strolled along the boulevard. It was cold and windswept. People hurried by, wrapped in their coats, shrunk together in an effort to keep out of the cold, and their faces were pinched and careworn. It was icy underground in the cemetery at Montparsi, along all those white tombstones. Philip felt lonely in the world and strangely homesick. He wanted company. At that hour, Cronshaw would be working, and Clutton would never welcomed visitors. Lawson was painting another portrait of Ruth Chellis and would not care to be disturbed. He made up his mind to go and see Flanagan. He found him painting, but delighted to throw up his work and talk. The studio was comfortable, for the American had more money than most of them, and warm, Flanagan said about making tea. Philip looked at the two heads that he was sending to the salon. "'It's awful cheek, my sending anything,' said Flanagan, "'but I don't care. I'm going to send. Do you think they're rotten?' Not as so rotten as I should have expected, said Philip. They showed, in fact, an astounding cleverness. The difficulties had been avoided with skill, and there was a dash about the way in which the paint was put on which was surprising and even attractive. Flanagan, without knowledge or technique, painted with the loose brush of a man who has spent a lifetime in the practice of the art. If one were forbidden to look at any picture for more than thirty seconds, you'd be a great master, Flanagan, smiled Philip. These young people were not in the habit of spoiling one another with excessive flattery. "'We haven't got time in America to spend more than thirty seconds in looking at any picture,' laughed the other. Flanagan, though he was the most scatterbrained person in the world, had a tenderness of heart which was unexpected and charming. Whenever anyone was ill, he installed himself as sick nurse. His gaiety was better than any medicine. Like many of his countrymen, he had not the English dread of sentimentality which keeps so tight a hold on emotion, and finding nothing absurd in the show of feeling could offer an exuberant sympathy which was often grateful to his friends in distress. He saw that Philip was depressed by what had gone through, and with unaffected kindness set himself boisterously to cheer him up. 
He exaggerated the Americanisms which he knew always made the Englishman laugh and poured out a breathless stream of conversation, whimsical, high-spirited and jolly. In due course they went out to dinner and afterwards to the Gate Montparnasse, Montparnasse, which was Flanagan's favourite place of amusement. By the end of the evening he was in his most extravagant humour. He had drunk a good deal, but any inebriety from which he suffered was due much more to his own vivacity than to alcohol. He proposed that they should go to the Bal Boulier, and Philip, feeling too tired to go to bed willingly enough, consented. They sat down at a table on the platform at the side, raised a little from the level of the floor so that they could watch the dancing, and drank a bock. Presently Flanagan saw a friend, and with a wild shout, leaped over the barrier onto the space where they were dancing. Philip watched the people. Bullier was not the resort of fashion. It was Thursday night and the place was crowded. There was a number of students of the various faculties, but most of the men were clerks or assistants in shops. They wore their everyday clothes, ready-made tweeds or queer tails, and their hats, for they had brought them in with them, and when they danced there was no place to put them but their heads. Some of the women looked like servant girls and some were painted hussies, but for the most part they were shop girls. They were poorly dressed in cheap imitations of the fashions on the other side of the river. The hussies were got up to resemble the music hall artiste or the dancer who enjoyed notoriety at the moment. Their eyes were heavy with black and their cheeks impudently scarlet. The hall was lit by great white lights low down with emphasized, which emphasized the shadows on the faces. All the lines seemed to harden under it and the colors were most crude. It was a sordid scene. Philip leaned over the rail, staring down, and he ceased to hear the music. They danced furiously. They danced round the room, slowly, talking very little, with all their attention given to the dance. The room was hot, and their faces shone with sweat. It seemed to Philip that they had thrown off the guard which people wear on their expression, the homage to convention, and he saw them now as they really were in the moment of abandon. They were strangely animal. Some were foxy, and some were wolf-like, and others had the long, foolish face of sheep. Their skins were sallow from the unhealthy life they led and the poor food they ate. Their features were blunted by mean's interest, by mean interests, and their little eyes were shifty and cunning. There was nothing of nobility in their bearing, and you felt that for all of them life was a long succession of petty concerns and sordid thoughts. The air was heavy with the musty smell of humanity, but they danced furiously as though impelled by some strange power within them, and it seemed to Philip that they were driven forward by a rage for enjoyment. They were seeking desperately to escape from a world of horror, the desire for pleasure with Crunch, which Cronshaw said was the only motive of human action, urged them blindly on, and the very vehemence of the desire seemed to rob it of all purpose of all pleasure. They were hurried on by a great wind helplessly. They knew not why and they knew not whither. Fate seemed to tower above them and they danced as though everlasting darkness were beneath their feet. Their silence was vaguely alarming. It was as if life terrified them and robbed them of power of speech so that the shriek which was in their hearts died in their throats. Their eyes were haggard and grim, and notwithstanding the beastly lust that disfigured them, and the meanness of their faces, and the cruelty, notwithstanding the stupidness which was the worst of all, the anguish of those fixed eyes made all the crowd terrible and pathetic. Philip loathed them, and yet his heart ached with the infinite pity which filled him. He took his coat from the cloakroom, and went out 
into the bitter coldness of the night. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. Ooh, what an ending to that scene. That's quite, uh, quite, um, I don't know, phantasmagorical. <laughs> Is that a word? <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, have your say about this chapter over at the subreddit. Um, thanks very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.